This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Oh, hello, hello, hello. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host who loves all things greenery. Live. Now, how many plant nerds do I have as listeners? I have to imagine it's lots of you, particularly after the plant boom that was a lot of people's COVID lockdowns. Plants are just so incredibly fun, and having houseplants just makes me personally so incredibly happy. So I was thrilled when I heard from Eva, who's studying plant myths and sacred groves across the ancient Mediterranean, focusing on those in Greece. It turns out we know so much about how the ancient Greeks intentionally planted trees and plants in honor of the divine, and how fucking cool is that? Eva and I had an amazing time talking about this. I learned so much and just got to nerd out about both my love of plants and trees and Greek myth, so I could not have asked for more. Because of where I grew up on Vancouver Island, which is home to so many unique trees and also like old growth forests like you wouldn't believe, I really developed an interest in these things, but never really thought to pair it with Greek myth. That and my mom was an enormous hippie when I was a kid, so it came with the territory. Fortunately, here's Eva to come in and wrap all of my interests into one tidy package. One thing I will warn you about is the audio on my side. Something went awry with it, and sometimes I sound funny. It's the damn technology I use to record conversations, and it changed, and I don't... Anyway, how have I not mastered technology by this point? Honestly, it's beyond me. I just uh, do what I know usually works and hope for the best, and sometimes it's quality, and sometimes it's just not as good. Here we are. 
I am not a tech wizard. Regardless, the conversation is amazing and the audio really isn't bad. I'm just an obnoxious perfectionist who feels the need to explain everything to you guys when I could probably just not say anything at all. But again, here we are. Do you want to hear about plant myths and sacred groves? Of course you do. Conversations, Becoming One with Gaia, Plant Myths and Sacred Groves with Eva Rummery. Plant mythology. Yes. it's so specific and it's so fun and like I already obviously have some ideas because yes. I know so many of those transformation myths exactly no it's such yeah. a common trope in mythology right um Greek mythology specifically but it's not researched very much which is interesting like it is research yeah. for sure um but it is kind of just something that's put to the side slightly which is very interesting, but very fun. It's a very fun area of research, which is good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. How did you get into that? Yeah. Well, I really like plants. You might be able to, I've got lots of plants in my life and I also, I garden. So I know, and I did environmental science. So I just know a lot about plants. And when I was studying my undergrad of ancient history, I kind of realized that there was this huge gap, like about environmental history like the environmental history of ancient Greece Mm. of course this is talked about a lot especially in archaeology like the environment is very important when we go to archaeological studies but more so the human relation to the environment how humans use the environment in a more I guess like mental way um, and especially in a religious way isn't really talked about so much and that's really interesting when we get into Greek mythology because of course this is a very common trope this is like something that they would talk about a lot um even though it's like kind of more put to the side in these mythologies it's just kind of there um Mm -hmm. and so when I was going into my master's I was like well I have all this knowledge about plants um and environmental science and I find this really interesting so I might as well just do it and my supervisor was like yeah great awesome I was like great (laughs) Let's do this. Um, so yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> that's so fun. I, I feel like I just need to say that I have a ton of plants in my apartment. Just Incredible. not in this little room I Amazing. <laughs> As we all should. <laughs> <laughs> I have a pothos that is like slowly yes. taking over my whole place. The absolute best. It's my precious baby. And then I have a monstera that I'm like staring at from here. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. enormous monstera. So no, I'm a huge plant person too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and they're just like, even as you were talking about that in the mythology, I'm like, oh, like, I think I'm more into, like, I'm obviously into plants, yeah. but like, when it comes to the myths, that's been my go to in putting together tattoo ideas. Absolutely. Yeah. Plants that are significant. Yeah. Because they just are like so symbolic. They within are. Exactly. The myth. Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. And they, they really draw you in in that way because, of course, like as you're saying, so many of us have plants and we love plants and we understand this like human connection with plants. Um, but it's really hard to try and apply that to the ancient world of course even though we have these kind of myths that kind of 
talk about that and have this symbology um, and symbolism with certain plants, looking back on that and trying to apply our love of plants to that is, it's a whole different story. And of course, it's very difficult and you've got to be careful with like pseudo um, history, pseudo archaeology as well in terms of like, oh, putting our own understanding of things into the past. But yeah, it's it's easy to see how we love plants. We we find this real connection with them as well, and the and we find our connection with the ancient myths of them as well. And so, how does that relate to the ancient people? Which is very much what I was interested in, and what yeah. I wanted to look into as well. Yeah. Yeah. So how like how do you go about like what what exactly do you study in that way? What do you look at? Yeah. Well, it's again, it's. It's tricky because you need to be really careful to, yeah, not move into a pseudo archaeology, pseudo um, history. So there's a really incredible vein of um, history, both modern and ancient, called environmental history that really works with this. And I guess the the purpose of environmental history is decentering historical narrative from the human to the non-human, the environmental. And this isn't to remo- remove human history because of course, like that's, we, we are human. We, we're interested mm-hmm. in human history, but it's kind of that acknowledgement that humans have never been the center of history and never will be the center of history. Like human history does not emerge within a vacuum. And so it's about researching the environment of which all this history happened as the center so that we can understand the human history better as well, which is what my research goes down. That's, that's what I do. And in order to do this, we kind of focus on three evidence sources, I guess you could say. So textual evidence from the time period that we're studying, of course, to understand the human perspective as much as we can in the way that they themselves write it. Then there's archaeological evidence, which is really, really important. So that's where we go into like seed analysis or any other relevant, you know, archaeological sources. And then environmental science as well, which is more a modern like soil testing, all of that stuff. Really cool things, <laughs> sciencey stuff. Um, so that's we go into that realm for it. And yeah, again, it's about kind of making the environment the center of our research so that it isn't put in the background as it often is with this kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) Seed analysis. Like that sounds so cool. (laughs) Oh man, I love it. I didn't get to do as much of it as I hoped because I was in COVID when I was doing my thesis, but I hope to in future do much more, (laughs) which would be so good. It's just so fun. But yeah, so um, that's what I did. And I used sacred groves as a case study for this and Mm. sacred groves is something come up a lot in greek mythology and in fact mythology is really our main textual source for sacred groves and you know so odysseus visits a sacred grove i think nausicaa tells him to go visit the sacred grove to Mm. talk to athena it comes up in the iliad a couple of times you know of course there's the killing of the nemean lion in a sacred grove of nemea all of this it comes up consistently in greek mythology but the people writing the greek mythology don't really elaborate on sacred groves very much they kind of just mention them yeah like mentioning things in passing right like excuse me you should imagine that like 2500 years from now people are going to really want to know right (laughs) exactly i'm just like man come on just give me a little bit more like just something (laughs) yeah exactly and that's because of course these were common 
features of their life. They didn't need to explain it. Like people no. knew about it. So yeah, so they come up a lot in Greek mythology. And what you kind of see in Greek mythology is this sense of communication in these spaces between the human world and the divine world. So often heroes will go there to communicate with gods or they'll be planted as hero shrines. Um, so that happens in the Iliad um, of from fallen heroes. So they'll plant them as hero shrines. And that's actually very much reflected in what we can see in the archaeology of sacred groves as well. And this all kind of ties into a lot of, yeah, exactly, the transformation stories. That's a really mm-hmm. common trope in Greek mythology. And it's kind of this interaction in this very wild and only divine way with the human and the divine in this transformation of a person into this divine thing. And often people who are transformed become nymphs as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So we see that with Daphne, Euronomy as well. So it's this interaction between the divine and the human. And it's really interesting to see that in the archaeological and historic record as well, that it was very similar, which doesn't often necessarily happen in mythology. Mm -hmm. Of course, we need to remember that mythology doesn't necessarily reflect society (laughs) of of like the ancient society necessarily at all. But at least with what we can see with sacred groves, it's actually remarkably similar in a lot of ways, of course, different in a lot of ways as well. But yeah, it's interesting. (laughs) Yeah. So like in what way, like how how does that kind of work in that sort of connection? Because that yeah. that alone is so interesting. Yeah, no, it is. So with sacred groves, there's lots of them. They're scattered all throughout Greece and they're very much a local thing. So local people will set up a sacred grove with their local myths, their local histories and their own rules based on their local traditions, right? So every grove is completely different. There's this kind of this historic understanding that sacred groves are kind of like a like all they're all the same they're all equal but that is just not true at all they're all really individual and mm-hmm. very much built upon local histories and change over time based on those histories as well so I'll use an example so Nemea as I was saying earlier of course the historic mm-hmm. place where Hercules killed the Nemean lion in the grove um, but it was originally hero shrine as well to Ophelates who I don't know if you know the myth of Ophelates I it's familiar, yeah, but not yeah. detailed. So it's in the um, the myth. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's in the myth of the seven of Thebes. Oh, yes, of course. And they like so. pass through Nemea and they're really thirsty and they ask this woman, oh, please, I'm really thirsty. Can you get us some water? And this, she's a nurse. She's nursing this child, Ophelates. And there's this, in one retelling of the myth, the child has been, it's been said, it's been fated that if the child were ever to touch the ground, it would die. The child would die. And, but if the, as the nurse is trying to quickly grab this water for the seven thieves, she puts the child on the ground and a snake comes out. And this is in the sacred grove as well. A snake comes out and kills the child. And then the funeral games of Ophelates, of his death, are actually said to be the beginning of the Nemean Games and the Olympic Games at Nemea. Mm. So that's very much the catalyst of this kind of worship at Nemea. And actually the myth of Hercules or Heracles, actually, we don't see that coming in until later. That's kind of a retrospective thing, but this is really Mm. the catalyst. And so the grove at Nemea 
it's not a site where people lived. It was a site where people would go and worship, specifically Ophelettes, but also Zeus, who um, the grove was dedicated to Zeus. Mm. And what we see there is that people would go there to worship to the gods specifically and specifically also to worship Ophelettes in his name. And this is a very ritualistic thing. So at the grove, there's this essentially a lump of dirt that was found by archaeologists and then was, you know, dug dug up by archaeologists um, layer by layer. And it's this earth that's been ritualistically cleansed and then laid down like onto this like and just added on. So this mound of dirt just keeps getting higher and higher with mm-hmm. I think it was 6,800 animal bones that were also put within this mound of dirt right wow yeah so a lot of a lot of animal <laughs> bones and so we see at Nemea that it was very much seen as a place where people would go and worship their gods just like you would at a temple and there was a temple there but this is specifically in the grove as well so it was like it was like a temple but it was kind of also seen as this kind of sacred very very sacred place where you would just do this one thing and then that was it and a lot of other groves around the place you weren't allowed to kill anything. There were rules around a lot of groves. So you weren't allowed to kill anything within the grove. Um, maybe you weren't allowed to touch the trees within the grove. Maybe you weren't allowed to chop down the trees within the grove. They were very much mm. protected. And each grove, depending on local custom, had different rules. So, yeah, we do see this really big interaction between the divine and the human in these spaces, which is very much also represented in the Greek myth. So it's it's, you know, we see this huge similarity between the two. Mm-hmm. The grove at Corinth was um, a grove to Asclepius, um, originally to Apollo, then turned into a grove at Asclepius. And uh, similarly to a lot of temples of Asclepius as well, we see, I don't know, you know, the the busts of different like, like body parts yeah body parts yeah. exactly oh, so we see those. Is my favorite yeah. exactly my ear just like yeah. a single ear yeah. exactly <laughs> so we see those two in the grove there as well mm. so very much a place where they could go to this grove and be like heal me please god asclepius and even in some historic tellings i think pausanias talks about how there was this one guy who spent a night at the grove of Asclepius in Corinth and then was healed. I can't remember what he was healed from, but he was healed because mm. he slept at night within these trees. So like the trees kind of formed this like separated space from the human world to the divine world, which is, yeah. And we do see that in the, in the myth um, archeology span as well, which is very cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. Um, any <laughs> reference to Asclepius and those, those yeah. like, dedications are just yeah. my favorite things in the whole yeah, world. <laughs> exactly. And a lot of groves were dedicated to Asclepius. I think he's one of the main mm. gods mm. that had a sacred grove as well as Apollo, kind of crossover between those two, of course. A lot of mm-hmm. groves that were originally to Apollo later became to Asclepius as the deities changed over time because obviously that was something that was really important to people like healing mm-hmm. um they needed something like that so it was this this place where they could go and be healed essentially which is um mm. very cool and it's all it's all amongst the trees man <laughs> like it's cool yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, i'm picturing greece and all of this conversation just yeah like, exactly oh, imagine it and yeah i i went to epidavros for the first time on this oh last my trip. gosh let me on there and i'm just yes. like 
Yes. You know. And I think, <laughs> I think Epi Davros also had a grove around mm. the Asclepion as well. So, yeah, me. exactly. Yeah, a lot yeah. of temples. So there were a lot of places that just had groves in themselves and maybe mm. a temple separately or not a temple at all. And a lot of places had groves around the temples. So they were like kind of interrelated. And some scholars see this as kind of the, I guess, the continuation of bronze age kind of tradition where there was a lot Mm. of worship happening in open sanctuary sites which were uh, like kind of like groves but again no temples in that time as far as we are aware of course and so a lot of people see this as a continue like a historic continuation of greek culture from what they knew in their past which was this like yeah worship within the trees and then slow transition to temples and not really seeing a separation there trees are still considered as like a temple kind of space but they Mm. also have now added in these temples as well which is yeah really interesting to consider yeah Yeah. I love that it feels very um very connected with the area where I live which is Pacific Northwest and like our entire existence is based around trees I just came from hanging out with a friend and like we have this one type of tree on my island and it's only on this island and oh so it's like gosh. super protected it's called the gary oak it's a really That's dorky so name cool. name for something named gary i don't know <laughs> um but i always forget about it but my friend was just like going off about the gary oaks and the protection of the gary oaks and our whole little like all our parks and everything and i'm just like oh this is like exactly the same thing but yeah. you know like our own version of it now and like this connection with the trees exactly exactly and the protection as well which is Mm -hmm. so like so interesting because you wouldn't necessarily and again this is kind of I know you've talked about this before but there's you know always this understanding that you know of course ancient people couldn't be as intelligent as we are today like you know they wanted as advanced like they didn't know the things that we know and this is especially so with the environment like a lot of people think that ancient people had no idea what was going on with nature like they didn't know Mm. about plants they didn't know you know of like what the environment was doing for them but I think this is a real disservice to ancient people to consider it that way because these people were spending more time in nature than we like can even imagine you know and all of their livelihood and their food was coming from these spaces as well so they very much understood the significance of their environment around them and we can see that archaeologically as well which I can talk about if you'd like please (laughs) yes but um, I think that also comes into play when we're thinking about you know the divine nature of nature and the way that ancient people may have considered this as such because like I think they just knew how cool it was. Like yeah. they knew the amazing things that nature could do and also how wild and unruly it is, which is very similar to how, you know, the gods are written about, you know. And, of course, a lot of the gods in ancient Greek myth are nature gods. Yeah. Yeah, there's this kind of idea that because, of course, we as um, a lot of histor- history of Greek culture is written from a European perspective, Eurocentric perspective. And in our culture, we do have this separation. We have this separation between the human and the environment. Like, you know, the environment is something separate from us, but the ancient people didn't necessarily see it this way. And we often write about it as if it is this way, but there's really no evidence, at least until later, maybe when we start getting into the Greco-Roman period and the Roman period of Greece specifically, you kind of can see more evidence of that occurring and that type of thought occurring. 
But this separation, at least as far as we can see, like through sources, didn't necessarily exist in the way that we see it today and the way that we interpret it today as well. So, and then also the separation of the divine and nature wasn't necessarily something that occurred either. Um, yeah. So I think it's really important to consider that when we're looking, especially at these myths as well, that there wasn't necessarily a separation between divine and nature and human and nature. It was kind of all interrelated and in like this thought pattern. And obviously we can never fully know, but we can't fully say otherwise either. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just think like they had three different Mother Earth style goddesses. Yeah. Like, you know, like one for every type of understanding of nature and earth. And like, and I just, I mean, even just at the very beginning of when you were speaking, all I could think of was like the different nymphs. Like there's like yeah, 20 so different types many. of nymphs. Exactly. Just so specific. A, yeah. <laughs> a minutia of yeah. nature and, and connecting that specifically with mm. divinities, but then also like, you know, it's, it's the divine in nature, but it's also those are the ways humans would then connect with it yes. it was their way of understanding the nature that they saw and they saw how magnificent it mm -hmm. was how powerful and important and life-giving and they just assigned divinity to yeah. it yeah. as a way to understand that like yeah i mean god it's just like it just makes so much sense. Yeah, and, and absolutely. Wow, I love it. No, yeah. no, <laughs> you're so right. Exactly. And it is very, like, it's not strange. I can, like, again, I'll talk about it, but it's, it is strange that we assume that there must be the separation when mm -hmm. it's very clear that this was like, yeah, all very much intertwined, mm -hmm. at least in the way that we perceive it from both mythology and historic tests. And then of course the archeology span as well. And I, again, going back into Eurocentricism, which you've talked a lot about on your podcast, which I think is I so try, wonderful so <laughs> because it's so important. Like, obviously, it's really sad and to see how this has been interpreted this way, but we need to talk about it so that we can deconstruct it. Mm -hmm. But interestingly, this comes a lot into play when it comes to plant mythology um, and specifically our interpretation of Greek mythology and nature gods. Because so there's this line of historical study that kind of turned up in the 18, 1800s um, called comparative religion. And this has yeah. formed and changed a lot of different times. And I think it still goes on like today, but it's in different forms. So mm -hmm. I'm by no means an expert on this field of study at all. But around the, the later 1800s, comparative religion was used a lot in European studies of Greek history and Greek mythology. Um, because this was a time period when, of course, Northwestern Europe was um, very much like, oh, you know, Greek history is our history, you know, like this is this is our past, even though, of course, like, you know, not really, but um, yeah. <laughs> this is very much our history. So and whether or not this was purposeful or like, you know, just something that happened because this is what their understanding was, they kind of ended up trying to prove that. Greek religion was more like our, um, you know, our Euro, Eurocentric religions or like our um, Christianity than it was to like, you know, what Greek religion was. Yeah. And the comparative religion was, and it kind of goes into primitivist type of side of history as well and historical interpretation as well, was kind of trying to show how cultures and their religions 
essentially changed over time based on the primitivism of the society, which it's it's mm. so yucky to talk about, but essentially yeah. – the belief was, and of course, there was a lot of um, studies being done and anthropology in the 1800s happening in like Africa and Asia. And so there was this belief in this comparative religion and primitivism side of history that, okay, so cultures and their religions started off like the most primitive side of religion was when cultures worship trees. So, or they just worship nature. So just the trees themselves, the nature themselves, this is the most primitive a society is. This is where society starts. And then there's, they kind of- You can hear the colonialism. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You very much can. (laughs) And then they kind of track this development of a culture through their religion, right? So the next stage of a developing culture is when they don't worship the trees themselves, but they worship um, like tree-like deities or deities that represent trees, right? So that's the next stage. And then the next stage is when these deities become anthropomorphic. And then the next stage after that, and it keeps going until, of course, it's like like one god, you know. Of course. Monotheism is the only way. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And there's this, there's a work that's so, like, basically just sets this all out. It's called The Golden Bow. Um, oh, by, I've um, heard of this. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's it's a very much, like, seen as, like, this capstone work for this time period and a lot of authors really use this like both like fiction and nonfiction, and authors and historians use this work as like a um, template for understanding this type of stuff but it very much sets this out um this kind of like staircase to a modern society or um quote unquote a european um northern european society right and so from works of this time period rewriting Greek mythology or rewriting Greek history in relation to plant and nature mythology, we're very much trying to prove, or at least like whether again, purposeful or just um, based on their own bias, can't say, we'll never know, that ancient Greek society did not just worship trees, um, that they they didn't worship nature in itself, that they, they were worshiping, yes, they were worshiping nature-like deities, but they were anthropomorphic. It wasn't, it's not like, you know, these primitive, again, very big air quotes, primitive societies. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And so they also, we see some historical works and historical interpretations of people trying to track Greek religion and how it's developed to be by the time of, you know, democracy and philosophic thought in later um, classical Greece. It's more, it's much more of like a Europe, Eurocentric like religious society and so in Bronze Age Greece yeah maybe they worship trees we see these signet um, signet rings of women hanging off trees so maybe they worship trees then but later on no they worship nymphs and these are anthropomorphic nymphs so you know there's this change and so even in the way that we now interpret Greek myth and the way that nature is represented in this myth is very much um, we've got to be very aware of this kind of like bias that comes up through this Eurocentric interpretation that has happened in the 18th century and even in, I'm sorry, not 18th century, 1800s, and even into the, the middle of the 1900s, this was still happening. I'm sure and to some degree it still happens today. Yeah. But that's very interesting to consider. I, yeah, yeah, I can see it. I'm just yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my full exactly. mind's exploding. Yeah, because... 
you know, if, if I if I really think about the sourcing and even mm. think about the visual representations that we have from the ancient world, we don't get a lot of super anthropomorphized nymphs. Not. Yeah. They're just talked about in a much more broad way. There's not explicit description mm -hmm. of them looking human. Um, and then same, I'm trying to picture, like, I'm sure there are some in like pottery and things yeah, in certain yeah. cases when it was necessary because they oh, often absolutely. have to, yeah, yeah. to show them that way. But yeah, it's not explicit. Meanwhile, all the the ideals we have of anthropomorphic nymphs do come from more like Renaissance art, yeah. and which is always like before what you're talking about, but it's still like, it's, it's still, still a Christian, yeah, exactly. it's Christianity, like it's yeah. coming from that world. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. Just this idea that they have to be more human. Exactly. And of course, like listening to everything you just said, all I can think of is like what was happening in North America at that time. Yes. Yes. And exactly. and the indigenous peoples who explicitly mm. worship nature, or I don't know what worship yeah. is the right word, but explicitly are like very connected with yeah. nature. Um, and then yeah, the the Oh my God, that's, yeah. Yeah, it's I'm very just... interesting to think about. And then, yes. again, not something that's often talked about because, yeah, of course, like, it's even because a lot of this nature kind of is seen as a backdrop to this mythology, right? Because it just, you mm -hmm. know, it's it's stuff that's mentioned sometimes. Obviously, it's the backdrop of these events that are happening, but it still very much forms our understanding of the society, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, when we've interpreted and understand that the interpretation of it this way, we get this more Eurocentric idea. And again, that's not to say that they didn't worship, you know, more anthropomorphized deities. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that. But we do need to be aware that our understanding of that has been shaped by this thought. Um, and even mm -hmm. like the translations of a lot of these texts, mm -hmm. the, the word choice, all of that is very much, could be very much influenced by this. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's interesting to consider that. And like just what you were saying about, yeah, like North America in this time, the same, I'm from Australia. And of course we have a very um, colonial history here as well. And again, this trying to prove that, religions that believed and worshipped nature were more primitive was like all like so rampant in this time well yeah i mean it's yeah. like basically why both of our countries were colonized exactly exactly so it's all part of this narrative yes and again it's so important to talk about this because we need to and we need to do that in order to deconstruct it as much as we possibly mm -hmm. can of course it's always going to be there but as much as we can deconstructed mm -hmm. this is it your moment this is your time to make your comeback with purdue global when you come back with a purdue global degree you create opportunity for yourself your family and your future it's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. 
Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. So when I was like researching all of this and still continuing to research all of this, I was kind of like, oh, wow. So I now when I'm looking at the way that, you know, these humans interacted with the groves and the trees of the groves I don't necessarily have to think about like obviously like I can't say fully what they thought about it but I shouldn't necessarily be thinking of them as seeing like you know like anthropomorphized deities in these trees they may have Mm. just in fact been worshipping the trees themselves as well and perhaps there isn't this distinction that we kind of are expected to see for so long you know Mm which is very interesting, kind of like uh, shifted my viewpoint a lot because, of course, like I grew up reading mythology, listening to your podcast and you're all of this. And, um, yeah, you just – it's it's so interesting to be like, oh, I've got to like change my viewpoint here. Yes. Um, it's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I'm obsessed with it. It's so <laughs> fascinating. Uh, well, and, and it, it just makes so much sense too to, to kind of – break that down and and like think about the actual sourcing and then what we actually know about Mm. how they understood nature deities particularly nymphs like that's the thing that I'm stuck on now because like there really were so many different nymphs for so many different types of plants and trees and waterways and all these different things and like these ideas inherently are not anthropomorphic like they are natural they are it's the natural world and and to me it always made sense like i don't i don't think i explicitly like thought about them anthropomorphized but obviously like all my varied mm. biases and in, in how i've mm. learned these things have influenced it but but at the same time all i've ever kind of imagined is just the nymphs existing as a way to not personify but like kind of i guess but just as a way yeah. to like understand the natural world and all of its like incredible mm-hmm. sophistication mm-hmm. and and like connect that to to like humanity themselves. absolutely yeah and, and yeah that could very much be the case like I'm and I know that there you know iconography there is iconography as like specifically from later Greek mm. history I can't say for earlier Greek history the where you know nymphs are anthropomorphized so i know that mm-hmm. at least at one there are quite a few groves that are actually dedicated to nymphs themselves mm. um which is very cool so we've got the grove of daphne which is a, a later grove even moving into the roman period a little bit but then we've got the um cult of urinomy mm-hmm. in Fagalia. yeah Fagalia, and 
um, they have a cult figurine there, like an iconographic figurine, which is anthropomorphized there. But that, again, it's it's a later Greek thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's like going more into the classical period and even mm-hmm. after that as well. So, yeah, it's interesting. And, of course, yeah, that's not to say that they didn't see them as anthropomorphized because you're right. It is that kind of – that's the connection between like I can understand this because mm-hmm. we are human and therefore we see human in things, right? So mm-hmm. that very much could be the place, but it's not necessarily the case or at least so much of the case as we once thought it to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It seems to me it would be reasonable if it was some kind of combination, you know, yeah. where it's like where they're not always – they're not just yeah. human-like. It, no. But it's like if you have to carve it, if you want to create a cult figurine, a yeah. cult statue, well, then like – what are you going to do? Carve a tree? You have the yeah. tree. You don't need to carve a tree. Yeah. So you, you're going to give it a human mm-hmm. form for exactly. that purpose. Yes. But yeah, more like purpose specific than, mm. than an inherent need to anthropomorphize mm-hmm. every one of them. Absolutely. And um, yeah, talking about, yeah, the figurines specifically in some areas of Greece and then also in Mesopotamia, they also had groves in Mesopotamia, especially closer to the coast. So like more in Phoenicia, Lebanon area. Mm there were a lot of groves there as well and they often wouldn't have a figurine but they would worship oh gosh what are they called like they were they were like a pillar usually they were like a kind of a a pillar of wood Mm. and I can't remember their exact name but that's what they would worship they would worship a pillar of wood wow so that and that I think is an earlier phenomenon but it did occur later as well so that also happened and again these groves were all very different and very local so this is all based on and that's what I find so fascinating about them because you get these snapshots of these different lifestyles and these different like cultures in themselves from these groves and the way that they and the rules around them and the way that they worship them mm-hmm. but yeah so some groves did have just these pillars as well and I know that mm. happened in Greece as well I can't think of a specific example but that also did happen in Greece so there's mm. yeah there's a bit of both a lot of groves also did have figurines as well specifically yeah it's it's very interesting <laughs> yeah and I would love to hear more about Mesopotamia and, and yes. Phoenicia and like how these things function there or literally anything about those places yeah. because <laughs> I it's like constantly I'm like oh if anyone wants to come on and talk more about <laughs> the east like I am so here for it I just yeah. don't have the knowledge myself yeah, but like, no, yeah. absolutely so yeah. yeah I I fortunately haven't done again as much research there as I would have loved to just because the archaeological evidence or more so the an archaeological evidence of like trees that we have there isn't as maintained as it is in Greece or at least hasn't yet so like the obviously there's still digs happening every day but um yeah there were sacred groves all throughout Mesopotamia and in similar but different ways obviously and again very localized so very much these local communities getting together to create these spaces um where they would worship their gods there and yeah similar to that and so there were these again protected spaces often which is a really interesting similarity between like in almost all groves in Greece and um somewhat in Mesopotamia as well these groves have specific rules for their protection right so yeah often it was that you couldn't cut the trees sometimes it was that you couldn't kill anything within a grove or harm anyone slaves could even in greece like slaves could even go within a grove if and be like safe and protected there 
Like they wow. couldn't be like captured again if they were like running away or something. And we do see that in Mesopotamia as well. So these were similarly very sacred areas. And of course there were different gods relating to them. So I think Asherah in Israel was one of the main, like in the Israel region of Mesopotamia mm-hmm. was one of the main um, goddesses worshipped in groves there. And then, oh gosh, there were just so many, like again, completely localized areas. Mm-hmm. And then when we get into later periods, when we have, you know, Greek influence in more Western Mesopotamia and then also then finally Roman Romanized Mesopotamia as well we see these later like old cults um, of Asherah and of other goddesses specifically often goddesses um, Mm -hmm. but sometimes gods as well actually these exact sites where these cults were become transformed into more Greek and Roman groves as well so the grove of Daphne which is in um in western Mesopotamia at Ortygia so it has evidence that it was worshipped much prior and we don't know which god which goddess but there is evidence that it was back um in like the age of Babylon Mesopotamia was also worshipped as a grove there so these these sites specifically are considered sacred and continue to be considered sacred later on. And this continuation is something I found really fascinating, both in Greece and in Mesopotamia, that often they wouldn't relocate groves. They would continue the sanctity of them in this exact spot. And Mm. um, that also kind of, I think, shows the significance of local history and this oral history that would continue even much prior to you know, when things were starting to get written down of these spaces and the mythology relating to these spaces. That's something we see at Nemea as well. It had been worshipped since the 9th century BC as far as we know, but it's likely that it was much earlier as well, um, even going into the Mycenaean Minoan period, which like, you know, 9th century is around that time anyway. Mm -hmm. And it, it continues. So we had, we had worship there and then they started kind of moving down the mountain but it's still in the same spot and then finally um in the sixth century bc the grove that we now know as the Nemean grove was built in this exact spot as well mm-hmm. and yeah same thing for a lot of mesopotamium um which later became greek and then roman groves they were from very early time even going into like bronze age on these exact same sites so that's very interesting to me mm-hmm. i think it's very cool well, and w- one thing I learned um, in having a guest on speaking about yeah. the, the Hellenistic period yeah. is is the ways in which at least some of those kings and like conquerors didn't try to completely overwrite the yes. local customs and the local yes. myths. They just tried to like incorporate their Absolutely. own. Yeah. yeah. Which is so, I think it just suggests like how powerful these things were to begin with. Exactly. No, I yeah. think that's so true. And yeah, again, I keep going back to Nemea. I just think it's a great mm. site. But when Macedonia came in with um, Philip and then Alexander into Greece, um, for a little while, the Nemean games had been moved from the site of Nemea to Argos. And Mm. the Macedonians, as an attempt to get the favor of the Greek people in this area, the local communities, again, going back to this locality where this Nemea was such an important site, obviously, Mm. they moved the games back 
to Nemea and they also reconstructed the temple there because it had fallen into disrepair and and actually replanted the grove um which was very very interesting and I can go into more of the archaeological evidence of groves if you'd like but um it's a couple of groves were replanted and we can see the archaeological evidence of that in pit plantings right so we can um see that these plants had been planted specifically in these spots and then replanted again in these spots and that's what Macedonia did in Nemea and we see that as like a way of gaining favor with these people and yeah exactly the same going into Mesopotamia again it was probably the same thing trying to get on the side of the people by refurbishing and rejuvenating these places they held really special and I think that just really shows how significant nature was and specifically Mm -hmm. these sacred nature places were in the lives of these people (laughs) it's very cool yeah yeah now I desperately want to hear about how you figure out when and where things were planted and replanted yes so the cool thing and this is why I ended up focusing most of my research on Greece rather than Mesopotamia which was a shame Mm. but um the cool thing is that there were very specific planting practices at groves in Greece and we have a lot of evidence of it because um I know, right? Like, it's so cool. Um, So we can see essentially with a lot of plants, there's this planting pit method, which basically you get a more mature plant, um, you put it in a pit um, that has been dug and sometimes has like concrete edges, sometimes doesn't. And you essentially use the lower limbs of this mature tree to as and put them in under the ground to kind of form the root base and then the roots will grow out from that point and this was a common planting technique in this time we hear some plant guy I can't remember what his name is talk about it <laughs> um a little bit later in history but we can see this going back into the archaeology one of the Plinies the only people I can think of that as a plant guy. Yeah, exactly. One of them. <laughs> I think it is Pliny, actually. I'm not surprised. I think there's also like, oh, it's like Theocritus. It's almost Theocritus. Oh. Like someone like that who also talks about like planting techniques a lot later in history, which is very fun. But when we look back on them, we can like, oh, that's what this is. Like, that's what yeah. this is. Yeah. And so Nemea, um, there's the Temple of Hephaestus in Athens, near the Agora. and um, cause then there's a, a site on Cyprus as well mm. in Cyprus where we see these planting pits and they're all remarkably similar and then we so there are these big pits you can find them with archaeology either because there's concrete around them or because the root systems of these trees which are very very old and have been there for a very long time have actually yeah. left that in like like you can still oh. see the root systems of these trees in the archaeology, which is very cool. And That's so cool. Yeah. Then based, of course, on findings in these pits, we can date the pits to certain time periods. And and then sometimes pits were replanted next to them that are younger or in the same pits themselves. You can find this kind of either the surface level of the pit has been like raised and another tree like planted in um, mm-hmm. afterwards. So we can see that with some of these sites, the the grove was so important that if some kind of tragedy happened, whether 
grove died. So, for example, in Emea, there was a fire in the 6th century mm-hmm. BCE that destroyed both the temple and what it seems like was the grove because the grove was replanted when the temple was rebuilt. We can see that in like the, it's the same exact time period of the pit planting and the temple being built as mm-hmm. well. Um, and a couple of other sites as well. There was a flood in a site um, also in the Peloponnese that seemed to have like completely destroyed the site. Um, mm-hmm. And we see a replanting of those trees in exactly the same spot. And Corinth as well. Corinth also has planting pits um, there as well. So it kind of, again, shows the importance of these sites. These weren't just like like for some sites, of course, they were trees that were already there. And most of these places would have had groves prior to their planting. But mm-hmm. the fact that they would work so hard to replant these groves and for a couple of sites more than once, like they would plant them a couple of times, shows the significance of these sites to the people. Yeah. Like they wouldn't do that if they weren't significant. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. yeah, going back to what we were talking about, how – um, a lot of people don't consider the intelligence of ancient people and how much they understood, you know, and in, in this case relating to the environment, the plants that were chosen to be replanted in these spaces are also very significant. So mm. I'm a lot so of, excited. Yeah, it's so good. <laughs> Tell a me lot, what plants. <laughs> so um, mm. a lot of the tree that I mostly focused on was the cypress tree because it's something that wasn't looked so into it. I kind of had to narrow my focus a little bit, but I did look at some other sites as well. But at all of the sites, literally all of the sites that the cypress tree was either planted or protected in these spaces, and often these were around really important temples or shrines or just locations, as we've already like identified with the continuation of them. At all of these sites, these are really erosive sites so like Greece is a pretty erosive place to start with there are some really fertile areas but these are like really erosive sites where you know they were losing like like mass constantly and cypress trees specifically are really cool trees because they don't need to be planted too deep Um, they have quite shallow root systems but they have very wide root systems which work really well to hold soil essentially and actually modern Greek environmentalists now use a replanting cypress trees in um, really erosive areas to preserve the soil in these areas and like it's it's not a coincidence like especially because I did like a um, a database of all the groves and which trees were there that these specific areas were where they planted cypress trees because these trees could live in these very erosive often very dry soils where a lot of plants just would not survive um Mm. and also they were planted in planting pits and um of course cypress trees have a very small shallow root system that they could survive in planting pits and then also they were they were preserving the soil there as well in these places that had often previously experienced flood or had experienced like mass erosion um and of mm-hmm. course flood um like flash flooding causes erosion as well mm-hmm. um so these these trees were kind of also acting as significant environmental protection places as well yeah. and i don't think that was a coincidence and i think the evidence shows that that's not a coincidence either and we have later greek authors you know going into like the first century ad um talking about 
these properties of the cypress tree. And so we know that this was at least known by the first century. So it's likely that it was known earlier as well. Yeah, um, irrational. Very cool. And yeah. in other areas, different trees were planted, which were also significant to that specific environment as well. So, yeah, it just kind of shows not only that these places were really significant, but also that they understood that they were significant environmentally, mm-hmm. which I think, again, cannot really be separated from this like religious side of things. Mm-hmm. So these places were protecting the environment these they knew that the trees were protecting this environment and this is a very like divine powerful thing and so it makes sense that these spaces would also be connected to the divine as such if that makes Mm -hmm. sense Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. (laughs) now I'm thinking of the myth of um of the cypress yes of Apollo and and Cyparissus yes and like trying to remember I'm mixing it up I think like where the tree was was originally like became anyway now I'm like does it connect with erosion (laughs) exactly no it probably does and you know again uh, like um Greece is an incredibly like hard environment it's really difficult um again there's Mm -hmm. more fertile areas but it would be again I feel like disrespectful to ancient Greek people to not think that they would understand erosion and not understand Mm -hmm. the significance of the environment and root systems and the uh, the mushroom root systems as well in preserving the land and yeah how this relates to mythology and all of that I think you can't disconnect that from it no well mythology is is so all about their natural world as much as so much of it is also about like war and and loss and you know it, it it is so many things but but like so much of it really is the natural world Mm -hmm. in a way that like it, it just yeah I mean I think that everything about what they wrote and their culture and everything suggests that if they were anything they were quite rational yeah to me that's what that kind of plant answer is you know like it's rational it's like looking at something and seeing connections and making those connections explicitly and then thinking I can emulate this I can plant a cypress tree to prevent erosion or to help or because I've seen it in action just by witnessing this you know and yeah absolutely I love that. and yeah I love it too and I think what I love about this like area of research is it just it brings so much empowerment to the ancient people which I think mm-hmm. for a lot of history kind of gets taken away which makes me sad because mm-hmm. um like you know these these are incredibly intelligent people these these people who lived on the land and like yeah understood it so I think whatever we can do as historians to bring that back to them and give them the appreciation they deserve really is really cool and especially again when talking about mythology which is something you know a lot of people could say like it's a bit strange it's it's surreal like you know that kind of stuff that doesn't mean that the ancient people who wrote this you know were silly or Mm -hmm. like dumb and like you know anything Mm -hmm. like that it's it's just because it's not though that we understand things today doesn't make it stupid (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I think is also really important yeah, yeah. I, I think it connects a lot to a, a thing that I've been trying to emphasize a lot in the show in the mm-hmm. past like year or two. I would say mm-hmm. of, like the way because uh, people, especially people who aren't in the world of the ancient Mediterranean, and like I don't blame them for having this thought process because you don't think about it. But like when it comes to mythology and storytelling, like they want to understand it in the way that we understand 
narrative structure and storytelling mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, things need to have continuity. They need to have an explanation. They need to be the same. Well, continuity. I was just going to explain it again, but I already said that word. <laughs> um, but they need to like, you know, have a kind of like canon almost, you yeah. know, like an, uh, you need to be able to like ask a question and have a singular answer yeah. It, yeah. within a story, which is not Greek mythology because no. no. it, yeah, it wasn't written with that intention, yeah. right? Like it, it was written with a completely different intention from a completely different people who did not understand narrative structure in the way that we do. Not to say they didn't understand narrative structure, but like we tell stories now to entertain. Yes. They told stories to explain, to yes. to like rationalize things mm-hmm. and to understand the world around them. And I think, I mean, plants are such a good explanation of that and mm-hmm. nymphs and nature and just like Gaia as a concept, right? Like yes. all of it is a way to try to understand this thing beneath your feet the way it's growing the way it's not growing what it is and is not doing around you and like an attempt to rationalize it in a way like with the things that you already understand Mm -hmm. and and that is so brilliant and incredible in its own right it's not like science in the way that we have science now but it's like this very natural understanding of the world and oh Mm -hmm. I mean it's obviously why I love mythology but like (laughs) Yeah, making these connections to the plants is so cool. Yeah. No, I completely agree with everything you just said. That's 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 so right. Like, yeah, and I, I completely understand the struggle of, like, trying to understand it through our lens and how it mm-hmm. works, but we just can't. Like, we just – it's yeah. just a completely different thing. We shouldn't try to um, – like, obviously, there's a part where you just – you have to, but, like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just an entirely separate thing, and there's so much beauty and intelligence and magic in that in itself, which is really mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite part about it at this point, and I think it's mm-hmm. just because I've gotten so deep and yeah. I've looked at so many <laughs> damn things over the last five years, but, like – I love that part. Yeah. The, the part that's like, no, I, you, we can't understand it by modern no. storytelling no. standards or narrative. We, we physically can't and we shouldn't. We should try to understand it in the way of like, in order to understand it, you have to think back to what the people were thinking yeah. as they were telling yeah. the stories, why they were telling them, what mm-hmm. they were trying to get out of it. And it's just like that in itself opens up so many more avenues for, for like, just excitement and like learning about these people and like speculating like mine's all speculation you know (laughs) I just want to like guess what they were thinking and why yeah exactly and that that's like that's so fun like I could yeah that's that's what I love it too and yeah like doing this research and like I just feel so much connection to these people even though like again I probably have no idea in reality like what they were thinking but like the more you learn about their context and like the way that they you know applied rules to things and applied um their rituals to things you're just like wow like it just it's just like this connection to it and that's really cool and though I know that I can never truly understand it um it's just so cool <laughs> it's so cool yeah. <laughs> like all I ever want to say on this podcast yeah, ever it's all yeah, just so cool yeah it's very cool um, bonus cool before we get too far away yes. from Cyprus so or Cypress trees I yes say. but so I was, again, before I started speaking with yeah. you, I was with a friend and we were talking all about plants. And then at one point I was like, this is really perfect. I'm going to go talk to somebody about plant mythology <laughs> shortly. And she was like, oh, I'm going to listen to this episode. I can't wait. My friend is like obsessed with Amazing. Plants. Yeah, it was very well-timed. Um, but she's also going to Greece for her honeymoon next Amazing. month. And in part because she's my friend and she just looked at my pictures yeah. and was like, so I guess I have to go to Greece, right? Yeah, like, you really do. To to oh my gosh. Like, I don't know how we're friends. <laughs> um, but I was just like trying to tell her about like, 
nerdy stuff she would be including plants and the biggest takeaway i always have is like the pine cones of cypress trees are the cutest silliest little things so true. it's so and I true just, i would like my listeners to go and google what the pine cone of a cypress tree looks like they're like these little round balls that like vaguely represent or like vaguely resemble pine cones yes. and again I, I come from the world of evergreen trees like literally my entire <laughs> life is made up of yeah. varied forms of those and thus pine cones are a big part of my life yes but the cypress pine cones are so little they're silly. so cute I think on this exact topic I think there is and I can't remember if it's Greek or Roman I can't remember but there is like a like a pet name that oh. is like it means I'm pr- I feel like I remember it's either pine cone like or cypress cone it's it's some type of like evergreen well, I cone they, yeah they wouldn't be called pine cones yeah pine cones are pine cones. <laughs> <They're> quite- <laughs> the point <laughs> um but like there's a there's a like a pet name relating to them I can't remember which like language oh it was but I remember reading this one day and be like oh my gosh that's adorable um I, mean, I love it <laughs> it's so good um but I also I would love to know other trees that they that they planted in sacred mm-hmm. groves, like both for practical reasons, but did they also have certain types of trees for more like divine reasons, more like like um, traditional? What's the word I want? Like like yeah. more connected to the yeah. divinity, I guess. No, that's that's absolutely true. So yeah, uh, actually, some trees are specifically related to certain gods as like so Zeus and the oak that's like a very common one so the oak Mm -hmm. of Dodona that's very common so a lot of Zeus's sacred groves are oak trees so that's very much a um and again it's hard to say whether these oak trees were there and then they were worshipped like later given to Zeus or um whether you know they like it was a backtracky type of thing Mm -hmm. Um, like established for Zeus, but a lot of a lot of um, oak groves were Zeus's. Though of course there are some cypress groves that are Zeus's as well. Cypresses were often either cult like um, sites or they were Asclepius, as I was saying. And mm. again, that again hard to say which which came first. But another interesting one with the cypress is this is a very medicinal you know, tree, um, cypress sap and resin. Um, and we, again, have this in later texts from Greek authors were used in a lot of medicine. So, again, that's an interesting correlation there. If, like, the god of medicine mm-hmm. has a very medicinal tree related to him. I, yeah, again, very I interesting. Then, of yeah. course, the olive, um, which was a very common Important. grove <laughs> in Greece. And they very similarly are – they're pretty hardy trees um that's why they do so well in Greece obviously um but again they're often Athenian um or Athena's grove so most in fact almost all of the olive groves are like in the Athens area they kind of have the monopoly on like sacred groves of olives um there are others for sure absolutely Mm -hmm. but again because this is again sacred groves are so local like they're local Mm -hmm places um created by local people and so it makes sense that um people who related with athens and the mythology of athens would really identify with olive groves and also of course olive groves grow really well in the region of athens again it's all interrelated yeah so like the mythology of athens and the olive tree are also related to the fact that olive trees do really well 
around the area of Athens. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's this kind of correlation as well. That's a really, really common grove. And yeah, they have a similar, they're similar to cypress trees. They are less hardy than the cypress and um, they do have deeper like root systems. So they, they have mm-hmm. different environments, but they are also really good at protecting the soil um in in some way as all trees are to some extent but some trees if they are able to live in less fertile less watered soils it means that they're able to do that in a more significant place because those places are more likely to like experience erosion and then the other which is like there's so many again there's so many types of trees and groves like you could really i'd say any tree that grew in Greece probably had a grove related to it but um one of the more I guess well-known one is the poplar and Mm. this is one that we see a lot in Homer poplar groves and they actually are often related to water because poplars like water um and they're more in fertile areas of Greece and they then accordingly um again interrelated often have to do with nymphs like water nymphs Mm. and this relation to this fertile watered place with the poplar which waters the poplar again this this whole interrelation of it all (laughs) and that's something that homer talks about a lot about the the watered poplar grove and how beautiful they are and yeah the the relation with the nymphs in those areas as well yeah lovely it's just so lovely um (laughs) it's so good Uh, yeah Yeah. so oh my gosh this is obviously so exciting I know I love plants but somehow I didn't quite anticipate how much this was going to be I know (laughs) (laughs) oh my god people have been there right huh um actually now I'm thinking even too right before I got on the call with you my sister randomly texted me being like I need pictures of your olive trees and your monstera tree please (laughs) love it really my entire family i really want an olive i need to get one i have two little ones i have two because i have one and i thought i killed it but they are very hardy they're amazing no they just like do their thing and that's the thing like they're so they're so good at it and like Mm -hmm. obviously it makes sense that they were so like revered in like such a such a like hard environment to like make like things from um, and yeah. like this was them. This was like their livelihood. Like, of course, they well, were revered. Exactly, because yeah. it's like not only are you getting this tree that does so many things, that good things that trees yeah. do, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> like the wood was good for everything. Yeah. The olives themselves, the oil made from the olives. Like, yeah. I can I can see exactly why Athena won. You exactly. Know? Like, why? Why? <laughs> Poseidon had no chance, man. Like, there was no chance. Salt water on a hill. What are you doing? <laughs> anyway I exactly. go on. no it's so true and again it's a testament to the fact like greek people just knew all of it like they knew mm. they knew everything about like the inside and the outside of these trees of these plants like they knew it like they really did mm. um and i just yeah i just need to know that you know <laughs> and it's interesting because um another thing that i was looking at because i was so i made this database of all these sacred cypress groves all of um and also other groves as well and then um looking at all the sources for them that we had textually and archaeologically and um of course this yeah it was very fun um and that meant that I was looking at things chronologically for quite a while because you know we had like a source at this time period for this grove and then this time period this time period and it's Mm -hmm. interesting because the 
you can see there's like a shift in the um I guess like the appreciation or like the understanding of nature from like when after Macedonian came in but then more so with Roman influence coming into Greece and then like Romanized Greece Mm -hmm. um that this like this worshipping of nature changes quite a lot and it changed obviously to the the more Romanized kind of um view of things but there's this this is really interesting passage you know the inner cypress grove and again this is a protected grove as all groves were mm-hmm. and um it's 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 not it's not historically um known as a historical fact that this happened but it was been written afterwards to represent what has happened like in like a more metaphorical way to represent the power of caesar mm-hmm. right and the men are in this grove and they've been told that they need to clear the grove for it's like you know to for resources for the for the army mm-hmm. um, cypress wood was really coveted um because it was anti-fungal antibacterial and um oh my god yeah this is a great tree <laughs> um yeah. yeah so they were told that they need to clear this grove and the men are being like oh you know that like this is a protected place the power of the gods like we can't chop this down and it's very interesting because the way that they're talking about this is, is almost as if it's a negative thing that this is the case like it's not like oh wow mm. this is beautiful like it's like oh like the the wrath of the gods is terrible awful place where these trees are like protected by the wrath of these gods and caesar according to this like like tale i don't think this happened in real life um because i in like historically he was actually somewhere else when this happened um <laughs> <laughs> but caesar picks up an axe himself and is like basically is like i do not fear the gods i do not fear these greek gods and starts chopping down the trees and then his men clear them out so you see the change and obviously what the greek people were feeling about this we don't know because these are roman Mm -hmm. sources but um the sacredness of these places were understood by the roman people coming into greece but not respected in the same way and and Roman people had sacred groves, but there's less um, rules and regulations around them, and especially not for Greek groves, obviously. Mm-hmm. And a lot of groves that we see this continuation from, from even the Bronze Age, but especially just after the Bronze Age onward, right until Roman occupation, suddenly are no longer worshipped at, like pretty mm-hmm. soon after that. So very quick shift there <laughs> um, in that case. And it's interesting because some of them do continue and they get shifted into, um, again, like what we were talking about earlier, some, you know, of the people going to these places to get influence in those places did like uphold these kind of traditions. And again, Daphne is one of those groves where that did happen. Um, I think that happened at Cos as well, if I'm remembering correctly. But these other groves, Nemea is one of them, just were not worshipped at anymore mm-hmm. and very possibly were chopped down as mm-hmm. well. Mm. <laughs> well, that just made me think of uh, the story of Erisichthon. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so the one I'm going to forget all the details, yeah. but I want to remind my listeners. But it's in all my spooky Halloween episodes <laughs> because it's super spooky and yeah. gross, but also tree related. Um, but he like chops down the tree, right? And then the the nymph like basically makes him eat him. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's so true. And so like this like fear around like this wild thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. a Roman retelling, isn't it? Is that a Roman 
it's probably an obvious yeah. that it's so detailed. So, yeah. yeah, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's a very interesting point. And of mm-hmm. of course, like we know that the Greek people also had this kind of fear around their gods and um of course like like that kind of like all powerful thing. But the But Romans did fear their gods in a different way, yeah, as far as I understand. Exactly. It. And also just the description of it. I remember reading this yeah passage and I will I'll find it so I can tell you exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Um but reading this passage and the the stark difference in the way that groves are talked about, like previously whether they these like places of wonder and beauty, like you can like we can invoke like Calypso's um, Odigia mm. and the grove there and it's like this beautiful wonderful place which is like you know full of divinity and godliness and then the way that it was described in this passage this Roman passage I mean of course this was like kind of propaganda type of thing anyway it's that was a very interesting yeah you're right like that mm-hmm. that um, image there really does invoke that um, yeah I'm like I wish that had happened to Caesar yeah exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah so yeah um, Caesar within the Bellum Civile. Um, yeah. Just Civil War, if you want to make it easier on yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Civil War. <laughs> um, exactly, yeah. So, um, and it's illustrated by Lucanius, and it is a fictional mm. version of events, but we do know that they did chop down that grove in reality, mm. but the way that it is told is yeah fictional he made himself seem more yeah impressive yeah, yeah. exactly um weird for caesar to do yeah and this is the grove <laughs> at massalia as well so um the specifically the grove there but yeah <laughs> it's very interesting. interesting yeah oh those romans <laughs> well oh my god this has been so much yes. fun clearly <laughs> is are there any other like fun facts or anything that you wanted to share no just it's all fun man it's all plans yeah. <laughs> it's like oh my gosh yeah I obviously I'm thrilled every I always feel like I like sound like it's like a script that I talk about how exciting <laughs> this is every time I talk to somebody but like as soon as you're in it with me I'm like I think you can get it like it's just always oh, so fun because man. I learn so much I agree <laughs> nerdy things like truly it's just always so exciting it is, it is. <laughs> uh, well oh my gosh thank you so much no. for doing this so much fun no thank you so much for having me man this is great (laughs) i'm thrilled this is very very successful plant (laughs) mythology oh my gosh (laughs) is there anywhere uh that you want my listeners to follow you or learn more or anything like that well i have a twitter it's at eva rummery on twitter and i um post a lot about plants on there some fun plant facts sometimes and a lot of medieval plant drawings i like to repost because they're hilarious and really fun um so yeah you can find me there and anything that i'm doing i'll post on there as well wonderful i'll put your uh profile or your link to your profile (laughs) and i'm gonna go follow you yes thank you (laughs) well seriously this has been so much fun thank Thank you you so much (laughs) thank you so much it's great (laughs) thank you for being so so interested in the plants i love it oh my god truly like (laughs) I'm always interested in any mythological stuff that people bring me, honestly. Like, I, I, w- I will take yes, all of it. Yes. But also, I fucking love plants. <laughs> so. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. How fun was that conversation? 
As you can all tell, it was very fun to record, sometimes too fun, and we talked over each other, which is when the audio goes weird. Good times. Why is my recording software suddenly being a jerk? Great question. I say it in every conversation episode, but it's really always true. It is such a thrill to get to speak with people about their little niche subjects and learn from them. Like, Sacred Groves. How incredibly cool! How amazing is it that we actually know how they planted certain things and why, both because of the archaeological evidence and then later writers talking about, like, that thing that we already had evidence for? It's like solving mysteries, this archaeology thing. Like, nerdy detectives. Anyway, this is truly so fun, and I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. You can follow Eva on Twitter. There's a link to her profile in the episode's description. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many cool podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. I am Liv, and I love this shit. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.